It's Nick Jaina time. I'm Nick Jaina, and I'm reading from my book, which is titled, Get It While You Can. Dear Blank, There is a riveting moment, right before an orchestra begins to play, when there are a few dozen well-dressed, talented musicians waiting in silence for a man to tell them to start. In that moment, they are doing nothing, sitting with their instruments in front of 2,000 people in a large concert hall. The silence in that moment is very expensive, very educated. It is of a different quality than you would find in a meadow at dusk. There's also the moment when a stripper has finished her routine, the music has stopped playing, the energy in the room dissipates, and she puts her clothes back on. I find the way she puts her clothes on to be so much more compelling than the way she takes them off, there is no show in it. I'd also like to direct your attention to the moment when the first side of a record has finished playing, and the needle spills into the center groove and keeps spinning until you get up and turn the record over. The amount of time it takes to get from the last song on the first side to the first song on the other side will always be different. If you're on top of it, it might just be a few seconds. However, if you're otherwise occupied, if there's a cat on your lap, if the egg yellows are congealing, if you're getting to second base, it might take a while before the record gets flipped and there's nothing the maker of the record can do to dictate how long this will last. Waiting. Chapter 6 When I enrolled in college, I was drawn to archaeology. My professor Ruben was a gentleman who worked to secure the first ever dig at San Juan Bautista Mission. Even though I was a freshman taking his class with no particular ambitions to be an archaeologist, he gave me the opportunity to dig at the site. San Juan Bautista Mission was the setting of the last scene of the Alfred Hitchcock film Vertigo, in which Jimmy Stewart's obsession with the platinum blonde swirl in Kim Novak's hair finally boils over. And he follows her up a bell tower only to watch her slip over the edge when she's startled by a nun. It's also where the writers Joan Didion and John Donne married in 1964. Didion was born in Sacramento and often writes about the burden of mythology on the state of California. I believe in the magic of California and I have the state motto Eureka tattooed on my wrist. The word means I have found it. In honor of the flood of people who came to the state in the 19th century looking for gold. When I was 12, I went on a student exchange trip to Matsuyama, Japan, where I gave a presentation in front of a room full of people about James Marshall discovering gold at John Sutter's Mill on the American River. I knew how to say my name in Japanese. Watashi wa nik desu. The rest I said slowly in English as a Japanese man interpreted for everyone. How do I know he's actually translating what I'm saying, I wonder. 
California has always been a place for those inclined to dig. First it was the Spanish laying down El Camino Real. Then the prospectors looking for gold, then it was the beats in North Beach. Everyone who heads west is stopped by the ocean and must look down. If they don't find anything beneath them, they end up digging into their own mines and end up becoming beach crazy, the condition of certain lost people in coastal towns who can't go back and can't go forward. Who digs Los Angeles is Los Angeles, Allen Ginsberg wrote in Howell, and I believe he meant that if you like a place, you become a part of that place, and you become a reason for that place to be liked by others. Or maybe he meant that the more you search for yourself, the more you separate yourself from those who aren't searching for anything. When I arrived at college, my new roommate had a poster of the Iron Maiden album Can I Play With Madness hanging on the wall. The one with the skeleton hand digging through the guy's skull to pull out his brains. I hated that image so much, and I had to look at it every day when I got out of bed. It was such a bummer to leave the tranquility of dreamland and have to face that poster. It was probably part of the reason why I dropped out of college. The school was California State University at Monterey Bay, and in retrospect, it was kind of a ripoff. Only recently, when I was driving through the campus again, and I saw all the buildings that went up after I left it, it occurred to me that my parents were paying a lot of money for a half-built school. The university was built on the decommissioned Fort Ord Army Base. The year was 1995, and I suspect the whole project was moved ahead to provide a good stop for Bill Clinton's re-election campaign. Six months before school started, a tour guy showed us around and said, this is where the library will be, and this is where the student union will be. She held up a drawing of what it would look like with happy people sketched in. I imagined myself as one of those happy sketch people going to the sketch library. But when I showed up for the first day of class, the campus looked exactly like it did on the tour and not at all like the sketches. There were still buildings with murals encouraging us to shoot first or die. We slept in barracks. There was no library. fat, rubbery leaves of ice plant covered the hills all over campus. A few decades earlier, the plant had been brought over from Africa to stabilize soil erosion on the coastal dunes. It thrived, but ended up contributing to the soil erosion instead of fixing it. Between the 70s and the 90s, the state went from propagating the plant to identifying it as an invasive species and pulling it out by the roots. During my environmental studies class, they asked us to pull out as much ice plant as we could, as we were cheaper labor than Mexican immigrants. Before they're introduced, invasive species usually sound like great ideas. In the 1890s, Eugene Schieflin, chairman of the American Acclimatization Society, decided that every species of bird mentioned in the plays of William Shakespeare should exist in North America. Schieflin brought over a group of 100 starlings from England and set them loose in Central Park. There are now more than 200 million starlings throughout the continent, all because Shakespeare mentioned one in Henry IV, Part One. Rarely has an author's pen had such consequences. Imagine if a revised manuscript turned up where Shakespeare crossed out starling in favor of warbler. Can't get all the starlings back in the bag, of course. In the play, a starling is introduced because Hotspur wants to drive Henry mad by having a bird 
repeat the name of Hotspur's imprisoned brother-in-law, Mortimer. Growing up in Northern California made me a member of the large group of people who don't want to think that they live in Southern California. I've always been curious about where the border between Northern and Southern California is. On tour of California once, I made it a habit to ask everyone where they thought the border would be if California were to actually split in two. Whether I was in San Francisco or Santa Barbara, the answer was the same. The border would be just south of here. At first I thought that was stupid coming from people living what was so clearly Southern California, but then I remembered that when I was growing up in Sacramento, I imagined that Southern California began just south of my city. None of us want to admit that we live in Southern California. Maybe we all do. California might mean more to people outside of it than to those who live there. On that trip to Japan, my host father told me he felt a connection to Sacramento because the word sacrament was sitting right there in plain view. I never really thought about the name of my own city, but hearing him say it aloud made me soften towards it. He was the first person to tell me that there are more trees per capita in Sacramento than in any other city in the world except for Paris. A fact that no one ever believes in which I myself doubt once a year and have to look up again to be sure. As a kid, I wondered why the Golden Gate Bridge was orange and not gold until I realized that golden referred to the Golden State and not the color of the bridge. Early in Vertigo, right under that bridge, Jimmy Stewart dives into the bay to rescue Kim Novak. They're at Fort Point, which was built just before the Civil War to prevent enemy ships from attacking. That no ships ever came close doesn't matter as much as knowing that even then, California was ready for the worst. A few years ago, my friend Chris was in a production of Macbeth at Fort Point. Most of the actors lost their voices, trying to shout over the winds that are always swirling through the old masonry. Early on in the play, a sergeant is asked if an attack on the Scots by the Norwegian king dismayed Macbeth. The sergeant replies that this doesn't trouble Macbeth. Yes, as sparrows dismay eagles, or the hair of the lion. A joke that launched sparrows across the Atlantic. I'd always thought that college would be the place where I would be able to study what I wanted to study. I couldn't wait to go to a university library and have unlimited access to knowledge. I imagined that I would be one of those students who stayed in college for a decade not wanting to leave. According to the career finder test we took in high school, I should be a technical writer. I've always imagined that a technical writer's job is to sit there with a video player and a screwdriver for as long as it takes to understand how it works. I suspect that all my favorite writers are technical writers, but instead of examining video players, they're just sitting there examining themselves, and instead of a screwdriver, they have a pen. So I went to college with the vague idea of being a technical writer, what I really wanted was to sit in the library and read books and explore. But it turned out there was just an empty lot where the library was supposed to be. At least there was an archaeology class. Imagine if you were really trying to be an archaeologist. There's a bunch of paperwork to get through. 
before you're allowed to dig, but that wasn't my experience. I was digging for artifacts the first week of class. The spoils usually go to the people who care the least. No amount of uprooting ice plant or sifting for broken pottery could change the fact that I was just another invasive species attracted to the beauty of California. My parents are from the Midwest. And after they got married in Chicago in 1969, my dad was offered an engineering job in Sacramento. They looked the city up in an Encyclopedia Britannica and read about the trees and decided it would be a fine place to spend the rest of their lives. This was a lot more research than I did when choosing my college. I thought the name Monterey sounded nice and went towards it. In my dorm room in the barracks underneath the Iron Main poster, I started recording music on a four track. I wrote some of my first songs, mostly trying to impress a particular girl. This felt better than covering Beatles songs and putting her name in the lyrics, which is what I had been doing. One day, when I was playing around on my guitar, I came up with what I thought was a cool riff. I didn't have any words yet, so I headed to the dining hall for dinner. As I was walking, I started thinking about the girl and how she didn't seem to like me the way that I liked her and that she drank too much and was too erratic. I probably looked like I was losing it, balling up my fist, talking to myself. I was rehearsing the words that I wanted to say to her. You're so... dramatic. The pause acknowledging my participation in the drama. I was excited about the possibility of this phrase fitting with the riff I'd been working on. Instead of going to dinner, I rushed back to my room and put the two parts together. This was the first time I'd created the music and lyrics separately and combine them in such a way that they actually fit. Perhaps that's what magic is, the synthesis of science and art. You build a structure and leave a space for humanity. At that moment, I simultaneously knew what I wanted to do with my life and realized that I was in the wrong place to do it. Aside from archaeology class, the school had little to offer. Music isn't something you should be learning in school anyway, and it's something you should be thinking about on a Greyhound bus between Knoxville and Wheeling. And another thing, that goddamn Iron Maiden poster. Every other weekend I would go up to San Francisco to visit a friend I couldn't stop thinking about dropping out of school. Her apartment building was on a hill in the Lower Haight, right in front of a church. When I walked towards her building at night, all I could see of the church was a big white cross glowing above. She was trying to convince me to move up to San Francisco. It was an international city full of excitement, she said, and I could come stay with her for a while. vertigo, Jimmy Stewart is investigating a woman who he thinks may be possessed by the soul of her great-grandmother. It turns out that her erratic behavior is just a ploy to trick him, and he becomes the one possessed. I was at the edge of becoming obsessed with songwriting, and he who likes songwriting is songwriting, as Ginsburg might say. I was in the middle of writing a song, a constant state, really, and thinking about that church in San Francisco one hot day in archaeology class. Each of us had been assigned our own place to dig. I was waist-deep in an old abandoned well that had long been filled with dirt. After several weeks of looking for stuff, not a single artifact had been uncovered. If you're not finding anything, archaeology is really just shoveling dirt around. 
I looked up at the mission from down in the well. The bell tower from Vertigo wasn't actually there. It had been a temporary thing for the movie. Hitchcock had looked at the mission and seen a bell tower where there wasn't one. My pickaxe hit a soft spot and a simple cross made out of white abalone shell popped out of the ground. It was maybe two inches long and still had a shine to it once the dirt was brushed off. When I held it at arm's length, it looked exactly like that glowing cross in San Francisco. I was excited to have found something for my Professor Rubin and for the mission, but more than anything, I knew what it meant for me. I grabbed the cross and climbed out of the well, calling everyone over. Ruben was pleased. The Padre shook my hand. It would be the first artifact that would go in the mission's new museum. Joan Didion spoke to the class of 1975 at UC Riverside. She said, I'm not telling you to make the world better, because I don't think that progress is necessarily part of the package. I'm just telling you to live in it, not just to endure it, not just to suffer it, not just to pass through it, but to live in it. And if you ask me why you should bother to do that, I could tell you that the graves are fine in private place, but none, I think, do they embrace, nor do they sing there, or write, or argue, or see the tidal war on the Amazon or touch their children. And that's what there is to do, and get it while you can, and good luck at it. I didn't stick around four years to hear what would be said at my own commencement address. Didion's words were enough. I wiped the dirt from my hands and walked across the street to a payphone to call Megan and tell her I was dropping out of college. I'm on the phone with my friend Megan in New Orleans. She's the person that I called when I got out of the well after finding the cross, and I went over to a payphone, uh, and I told her that I was dropping out of college. What do you remember from that day? I remember being supportive of your decision to do that and thinking that it was cool that that you found that. I, that was a time when I think that I was very, um, like, steeped in, you know, believing in signs and symbols, like, more so than I am now, although I still like to look at the world that way. But then I think that, you know, I was like, oh, well, you found that cross, so clearly the universe is telling you this is what to do, and, like, you know, no question, you know, so... Yes. So I think I was on board with that, with you. You didn't think I was crazy or rash? Um, gosh, I mean, like, me then, when I was, I was, I think I was, like, still 17 or not, I just turned 18. Um, like, I know I would not have made that decision because I was so invested in going to college. Like, that was such an important thing for me just so that I didn't end up being someone who didn't go to college like everybody else in my family. But for you, I felt like that was an okay choice, you know, like you could, you, and you were already like playing shows, right. Weren't you like, like you'd already yeah. had that, that show at that coffee shop in San Francisco. And, um, yeah. And also your school was kind of bullshit. Like, <laughs> like you yeah. know, like, like you, you just kept telling me like, you know, that it was like unfinished and, that it was just like an army barracks or something. And you know, that like they were just basically putting you guys to work and it really did sound like not, you know, like a good fit. Like you weren't like you hated your roommate, like just nothing seemed to be going right or making, you know, you happy. And you had this other plan, which was to like go play music. So that seemed like, you know, if you were just going to go home to your parents, I probably would have encouraged you to stay, but because you had another plan, you know, that sounded like a cool thing to do. Um, that, yeah, I think I was supportive of that. And I wanted to come hang out with you in San Francisco. 
<laughs> you know, like, like you, we were really close then. And like both of us were having a hard time in our first years of college, like finding our way and, you know, having you close by was important, but you're going to San Francisco and that would be, you know, you'd still be close by and that'd be a cool place to hang out with you. Chapter seven. A man and woman are sitting cross-legged at the front of the meditation hall. There are teachers modeling the kind of calmness we're supposed to be feeling. The person closest to me is a fidgeter. Every 30 seconds, another fidget. In addition to being silent, the goal in meditation is to not move at all. As the week unfolds, we're supposed to be increasingly vigilant about staying still. The fidgeter wears a jacket in every session, one of those light, waterproof ones that makes a shushing every time it moves. Out of 100 still and quiet people, I'm frustrated to be stuck next to the douchebag and windbreaker. Whenever I encounter someone I don't like, I try to relax and think about what it will be like a long time from now. After our sun has died out and all the stars in the sky have collapsed and all the matter in the universe reverses course and hurdles towards one infinitesimally small point in a reverse Big Bang, every particle that has ever existed, every person that you've ever loved or hated, all the city buses, the bottles of hairspray, lost mixtapes, the early notes for the lyrics to the Eagles Take It Easy, all of that will squeeze into a container much smaller than the elevator in an old building, and we will have to learn how to get along and find something to talk about. For one billionth of a second, that is, until the universe big bangs again. The meditation sessions are designed to focus us on direct experience, as opposed to blind ritual. Goenka speaks of going into the cells of our bodies and extracting the suffering, performing surgery on ourselves, in other words. Up until now, I've never really considered the possibility of changing the fundamental nature of myself. Once cells are set in motion, I've always thought they will carry that momentum for life. The brain tells the story of our consciousness, but that story is not the absolute truth. You can stare at your bookcase full of books, wonderful books written by inspiring people, and you can think about how splendid the world is, how much you are loved by your friends, and how everything is going to be all right. Then with no change in the actual world, your brain can tell you that everything is shit that all those books are lies, or at least pale attempts to cover up the pointless suffering of the world, that all your friends are just laughing at you, that everything is not going to be all right. All the while that bookshelf sits there, the words never change. My drum teacher Gavin used to talk about getting into the groove of a song. It's called a groove, he explained, because it's the same thing as a woodworker using a plane to wear a path and a piece of wood. Each pass of the tool makes it easier to find that groove again. It makes it more real. When you make a groove with music, you're establishing a place where people's bodies can move, where they can attract each other, where they can fall in love and create their own grooves. That's why falling in love cuts so deep. You actually cut a groove into your brain because it feels so good. And you don't realize how deep into the canyon you've gotten until it's too late. Dear Blank, I saw a picture of conjoined gray whales that had washed up on the beach in Mexico. They were attached at the hip. They had only lived a short while after birth, yet their big mouths looked more like smiles of contentment than anything else I've seen today. I thought, foolishly I know, 
Well, that is us. Too connected to swim off on our own, too encumbered by our own ties to survive as individuals. For every one weird thing we find on a beach in Mexico, there are ten stranger things that live and die in the deep black never to be illuminated by flashbulbs. Likewise, for every person who comes up to us with unexpected kindness, there are probably ten more whose path we'll never trip over, who will never clap us on our backs as we raise our mugs at the tavern. The suggestion of what might still be out there is what keeps us hunting. I remember hearing as a kid that when a zoo first puts an elephant in captivity, they have to use the strongest chains possible because the elephant constantly tries to escape. But after a few weeks or so, they don't need the big chain anymore. They can keep an adult elephant captive with just a tiny piece of rope. Just the suggestion of a chain is enough. Oh, the things that casually tell kids at school. You never know what offhand anecdotes will wind up in someone's mind 30 years later. Careful what you say, Nick. This has been Nick Jaina time. Today I read several chapters from my book, Get It While You Can, from Perfect Day Publishing. All musical accompaniment, written and recorded by me. Theme music by Richie Green. What you heard today is what I do live across the world. Uh, 150 or so nights a year. My book is available online, along with tour dates and other things, at nickjaina.com. N-I-C-K-J-A-I-N-A.